Section 1 of Going Abroad, Some Advice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Fascio. Going Abroad, Some Advice by Robert Lucy. Why, Who, and When to Go. It may be assumed that most people who will read this want to go to Europe and know why they want to go. It is hardly worth while to waste any time over the man who has no desire to see the land of his ancestors, to view the scenes made familiar by the pen of the historian, the storyteller, or the poet, to enjoy the art treasures of the old world. If a thousand books of travel, if lectures and letters innumerable, if the enthusiasms of homecoming tourists have not aroused a longing to cross the Atlantic, it would be futile for me to try where the most potent of human influences have failed. My province, then, should be to aid those who want to go and can go, but do not know just how, when, and where to go. To encourage those who really have the means to go, but fear they cannot afford it. To save time, vexation, and money for those who have decided to go, but lack experience of their own and have no experienced friends from whom to get the desirable information. It is possible, also, that aid can be given even to those who have talked the matter over with the most expert of tourists. For rare is the man who, having done a thing himself, can remember all the doubts and uncertainties that perplexed him before he did it. Any feat accomplished seems easy enough afterward. Then, too, molehills for one man may be mountains for his successor. So though I set myself deliberately to conveying all the information on this topic that may occur to me as likely to be useful, I may omit answers to many questions that might be asked. But it is tolerably certain that I shall answer more than any questioner would be likely to think of in one conversation. To advance reasons why anybody should go to Europe may be dispensed with, but it may not be useless to advise you to know yourself why you are going to have your object clearly defined in your own mind. Surely, your trip cannot be intelligently planned if you are misty as to its purpose, and surely it would be foolish to devote some months of your life, possibly some years, to an expedition without definite aim. To be sure, travel for its own sake is beneficial, as all wise men have agreed from time immemorial. Homekeeping youths have ever homely wits, and though travel will not make a gem out of a pebble, nothing else will so quickly cut the facets of a diamond mind. It is then far from useless to journey through a foreign land with no other idea than to enjoy its scenery, its buildings, and its art, to observe the customs of its people, and to live for a while as they live. Yet there is greater satisfaction in returning with the belief that you have done something, however little it may be, toward mastering some one branch of knowledge. The purposeless travel, with any desire at all for self-improvement, may come home conscious that he is a wiser and a broader and a more cultured man than when he went away, but his conscience will not be wholly satisfied if he cannot say to himself, I can speak a foreign language now, or I can now tell what is a handsome church, and why it is a handsome church, or I have learned something of the rudiments of singing, or something else. Of course, a hasty trip gives little chance for study, and no one object can be pursued systematically in even a long trip unless you stay in one place time enough to go at it earnestly, 
Yet if, for example, you have read up on some architecture before going abroad, six weeks' observation in continental cities will at least fix in your mind what you have read. If the object of the trip be simply rest and recreation, it is still worthwhile to remember that you have an object. What can be more absurd for a man worn out by the whirl of New York than to jump into the whirl of London or Paris, or for the woman exhausted by the social functions of her home city than to harass herself with preparations for presentation at court? More pertinent than moralizing on how not to rest will be the suggestion that an ocean trip with a few weeks of foreign travel may prove the most health-giving change a tired man or woman can find. Hundreds of people go abroad every year for that alone, and believe it, the most delightful vacation they can take. As a vacation, it is not so very much more costly than one of the same sort at home. We will go into details of expense later, but it may be said here that it costs no more to take a two-month's trip abroad than to put two months into making the tour of America's watering places, or, if staying in one spot is preferred, the extra cost of a European vacation over that of one in the States is never more than the expense of going and coming, and is usually much less. It is probably cheaper to go to Europe than to go to Florida for anything more than a month, and certainly is less expensive than to go to Southern California. Age and Sex As for age, nobody not in the first or second childhood is too young or too old to profit by a European trip. Any boy or girl of talking age will pick up a foreign language with an ease and celerity astonishing to the adult, and will thus profit to a degree well worth the pains of taking a child a journeying. When the young person is old enough to be left at boarding school, a year in one where foreign languages are spoken will accomplish as much as two years at home, if the languages are to be deemed an important part of education. Many youths have with profit substituted a year at some German university for one year of the course at Harvard or Yale. Of course, for advanced students, the benefit of foreign universities is incalculable. The notion that young men who have wild oats to sow can do it more readily abroad than at home is not sustained by the facts. Everywhere on the continent the rational use of beer and wine is a safeguard for youth more than a temptation to it. Of course, there is drunkenness, but I am inclined to the belief that the young American by himself abroad, while learning little of abstinence, learns more of temperance and self-control than when thrown on his own resources in an American city. There is no more chance to get gambling habits in Paris or London than in New York or Chicago. In the university towns, gambling is as rare as in our own colleges. In the matter of chastity, European and American notions differ radically, and though not more than in other large cities perhaps, there are as many trilbies in Paris as ever, but intimate acquaintance with many young men who have gone to Europe to study leads me to assert with confidence that they seldom forget puritanical teachings, and that any fellow with brains enough to profit by a foreign trip can be as safely trusted on one side of the water as on the other. Apart from the matter of study, in my mind the European trip brings most profit to the man or woman of mature years, yet not beyond the learning period. Of course, there are many people who keep their minds in the receptive condition to the very last, people who will take up Greek at fifty and plunge into calculus at seventy. Yet most people, by the time they get into what is called the prime of life, have their habits of thought so settled, their prejudices so rooted, 
their ambition so satisfied, that travel, if undertaken for the first time, has comparatively slight educating influence. Elderly people, too, who have never traveled, may find it hard to accommodate themselves to the change in their daily routine, and the frictions of journeying sometimes try their patience and temper unduly, though it is the fact that women from fifty-five to seventy often accommodate themselves to circumstances more cheerfully than many of the younger people. The matter of sex need not affect in the slightest the question of foreign travel. If an American girl wants to study art, music, or languages, and has the means, there is not the least reason why she should not go alone to Paris or Berlin or Vienna to do it. Under like conditions, there is no greater fear of insult abroad than at home. The only difference I have ever heard of is that in Europe young unmarried women with regard for their reputations do not go out in the evening without escort, but the same thing is true of the larger cities here. English women think nothing of taking their vacations on the continent. In the mere matter of travel, Europe offers in some ways more comfort and convenience than America to women journeying alone or in parties without men. They need never touch their luggage unless they choose. At hotels and railway stations, they will always be more courteously treated than men, and that is saying a good deal. The railway cars have separate compartments for women. Cabs abound everywhere. To make foreign travel still easier, there exists an admirable organization called the Women's Rest Tour Association, which may be addressed at 264 Boylston Street, Boston. Quote, its object is to furnish women who wish to travel for purposes of rest and study with such practical advice and encouragement as shall enable them to do so independently, intelligently, and economically. It is not designed for the convenience of women who organize or conduct large parties. Unquote. And it may be added that it is in no way a money-making institution, there being neither salaries nor dividends for anybody in it. Mrs. Julia Ward Howe is the president, and other well-known New England women are on the board of officers. It publishes a handbook of travel, entitled A Summer in England, to which I would here give credit for some of the information hereafter given. Issues yearly a revised list of accredited lodgings and pensions all over Europe, with details concerning prices and accommodation. Publishes an occasional paper called The Pilgrim Script, devoted to travel and life abroad, exchanges introductions between members who desire company, lends money from its traveling fund, under careful supervision, to provide vacation trips for women greatly in need of rest and change, advises in regard to travel, lends from its library of Baedeker guide books for the European trip, and in minor ways accomplishes its laudable purpose. The fee for the first year's membership is $2, annual fee thereafter, $1, life membership, $25. If but a small part of the wealthy American women who get enjoyment out of a trip abroad would, by becoming life members of this association, aid it in helping their less fortunate sisters to the same enjoyment, its sphere of usefulness could be greatly widened. Seasons and Climates If it is for a vacation that the trip is to be made, undoubtedly the best time to go is in the early summer. Europe, on the whole, is cooler than the United States, and of course two or three weeks on the ocean save just so much of the discomforts of dog days. Switzerland in July and August is to Europe what the White Mountains are to New England, and at the same season Scotland, 
Norway, Sweden, and Russia are delightful. But the difference in temperature between most of Central Europe and the United States in summer is not enough to make it worthwhile going there at that time for climate reasons alone. Many a wise American who can take his vacation when he will endures the heat of the city during midsummer and then ranges the mountains, the seashore, or the woods in early autumn. Others find the most good in seeking the trout brooks when the grass and foliage are freshest, when the drain of a hard winter on the system has made the air of April or May most delightful to a physique exhausted by the fight with our northern winter. So, too, if one is to go abroad simply for physical good, it may be wisest to go not when the climate left at home is at its worst, but when the climate reached on the other side is at its best. As many people, by reasons of the limitations of a business or a profession, must go in June, if at all, and return in August or September, the steamers are then most crowded. Therefore, their owners not improperly charge a higher rate across in the late spring and early summer, a higher rate back in the late summer and early fall. In spite of this, the demand for berths is so great that they must be engaged weeks or even months in advance, unless the tourist can run the risk of getting at the last moment some berth that has been given up, when he may be lucky enough to secure the best of accommodations. From November to April, there is usually plenty of room, and travelers to whom crossing is an old story frequently take no more precautions than they would to secure a berth in a sleeping car for Chicago or St. Louis. In the winter, payment for a single berth usually secures a whole stateroom to yourself, and you have practically the pick of the boat. Sometimes, on the smaller boats, there will not be half a dozen first-class passengers. From the point of view of both economy and comfort, then it is wiser, if practicable, to travel when the winter rates are in force. The fear of stormy weather doubtless deters many people from doing this, but the fact is that though the chances of severe storms are greater in winter than in summer, they are not enough greater to cut any figure with those who cross repeatedly. This matter of storms is largely one of luck. Crossing in January, I have left New York in a snowstorm, and on no day afterward had the mercury register below 55, only to hear, within a week after reaching the other side, that for days after we left New York, every steamer entered that port ice-clad, and several were seriously delayed. That was the trip when I vowed I never again would take an Ulster across, and even in winter the thickest of Ulsters is sometimes none too warm in mid-ocean. The icebergs are plentiful in spring, and no doubt it is dangerous to scrape acquaintance with an iceberg. Yet to delay a trip through fear of icebergs would be about as sensible as to refuse to travel on a railroad in a thaw, because the roadbed gets loose more frequently than than at other times. It should be said that the steamers which run from New York to Mediterranean ports in winter are as crowded as those that run to Liverpool, Southampton, etc. in summer. The winter rates to Genoa correspond with the summer rates to Hamburg and Bremen, so that in this regard nothing is to be saved by winter travel, but undoubtedly the southern passage is the milder, and with less storms. On the other side, too, winter travel has many advantages over that of summer. The trains are seldom half full, and it is a rarity when a couple cannot get a compartment to themselves, if they want it. The hotels are less crowded, and you average better accommodations for the same money. You see the sights more at your ease. 
If the society life of London and Paris has attractions, the late spring is the time for you to study it. The London season, as it is called, theoretically begins after Easter and lasts till August 12. It is at its height in June, when come the Ascot races with their royal processions. But to the stranger without letters of introduction or any way of getting inside the doors of society, perhaps during the season may not be the best time for visiting London. All the hotels are then crowded, and that is a nuisance to the traveller. Good places at the theatres are hard to get, the museums and galleries are thronged, the shopkeepers are rushed. To be sure, the climate is then most propitious. You can see royalty and nobility and gentry at the races and in the parks. Ladies who want to study the styles get plenty of chance. People who like a bustle and a crowd can gratify their tastes. But to one who wants to see London itself, to learn the ways of its people, to study its collections, its buildings, its administration, or any of its serious phases, the season is not the most propitious season. In midwinter, the climate is not attractive. Fogs are often a nuisance, and when there is no fog, it is usually bleak, wet, and what the English call nasty. Perhaps, then, the fall and early spring are the best times in which to visit London. In France, the conditions are somewhat different. To be sure, Paris, too, has its season, coming about the same time as the London season and ending earlier. But the wealthy Frenchman makes Paris his home, taking his vacations in the country, and many wealthy Englishmen, perhaps the majority, live in the country, taking their vacations in London, so that Parisian hotels are not so crowded as London hotels in May and June. In those months, the climate of Paris is charming. The Bois de Boulogne is at its best. All the parks are delightful. The two salons are open and the conditions are the most satisfactory for every kind of sightseeing. The spring and fall are undoubtedly the best times for Italy. The winters, to be sure, are nominally mild. Snow is a rarity in Naples, and seldom stays long in Rome, Florence, or Venice, and the thermometer calls few days frigid. But the mercury lies in Italy. When it registers fifty, you suffer more than with it at twenty in America, not in the sun, of course, but on the shady side of the street and indoors. It is the damp, penetrating chill, of a kind to which few Americans are accustomed. The houses are all of stone, designed to be cool in summer rather than warm in winter, and they are wretchedly heated. Steam heat is unknown. The occasional stove is a wretched failure, and most of the fireplaces smoke. Wood is expensive, and always charged for it if burnt in one's own room. Even with the blazing fire in the fireplace, the chamber has a clearly defined torrid, temperate, and frigid zone. There is seldom any attempt to warm the museums and galleries. Do not, however, get the idea that Italy is unendurable in winter. It has charms at every season of the year, and its January is certainly more comfortable than a Boston or New York January but it is not paradise. The warmest parts of Italy visited by the ordinary tourists are two rivieras, shores, one commonly called the Riviera, running from Nice to Genoa, where lie Mentone, Monte Carlo, San Remo, etc., the other a still more beautiful coast on the sunny side of the rocky promontory that bounds the Bay of Naples on the south, 
of which Amalfi is the gem. The Riviera from Nice to Genoa is sheltered from cold north winds by the barrier of the Alps, is full in the face of the sun, and often does not see a snowstorm for years. Semi-tropical plants grow freely, and the temperature is so mild that many victims of lung troubles are sent there to convalesce, or die. It has hotels innumerable, which are for the most part well filled during the first four months of the year. Queen Victoria usually goes there for some weeks in the early spring, and it abounds with royalty and nobility. Save in such sheltered spots as San Remo or Ventimiglia, the scenery of Italy is naturally at its worst in winter, for then the landscape is brown and bare. It is at its best in April and May, before the sun has begun to burn up things. May is certainly the best month for the Italian lakes, unless one prefers to go in October, when the fruit is ripe and the weather usually delightful. June is a charming month at Venice, though some of its days are uncomfortably warm. Later on, the canals get stale and sour. The summer temperature in Vienna averages about the same as that of Louisville, Kentucky. Indeed, the Italian summer is much like that of Kentucky or Virginia, endurable enough, but less comfortable than the spring. In July and August, the thermometer at Rome averages almost exactly the same register as in Washington. Few of the army of American tourists then go south of Florence, but European travelers, and especially Germans, think nothing of visiting Rome in July or August, and I have met people who declared they suffered no inconvenience at Naples in dog days. Their sense of smell must have been impaired, for the odors of an Italian city in summer are not delightful. The notion that Rome must not be visited in summer on account of the malaria in the Campania is no longer supported by those in a position to speak with authority. Of course, it is dangerous to promenade after dark in the Campania, just as it is in a western river bottom or anywhere else that malaria abounds, but tourists do not promenade on the Campania after dark, nor do they drive across it after dark, as they often did before the time of railroads, when I suspect it was that Rome got its bad name as a summer resort. It does not yet deserve a good name, but it is no worse than our southern states in the summer months, and if a tourist cannot well go south of Florence at any other time, there is little except the dread of perspiration to keep him from going in July and August. Rome is healthy in the autumn, common report to the contrary notwithstanding. Its October is about as warm as that of Georgia. The autumn is a good time for Italy generally, and traveling is much more comfortable than in the spring, as the trains and hotels are less crowded. In October, the vineyards are in their glory. Sicily has an annual temperature averaging close to that of South Carolina. Its climate is somewhat humid. Switzerland, for the passing tourist, is of course to be visited in summer, and in August rather than in June or July, if any mountain climbing is to be done. For while the snows are melting in early summer, the heights are the more dangerous. In September, the air gets chilly, and the shortening of the days is emphasized by the deep valleys, yet when the weather is fine the country is never more delightful. The air is often clearer, and the mountain scenery more beautiful than in summer. June is the next best month for the lower levels, but walking or climbing is harder in June than in November. Most of the mountain hotels open June 1st, and close September 15th, or August 1. Many foreigners pass the winter about Lake Geneva, particularly at its eastern end, 
and there are a few winter resorts at high altitudes, almost wholly frequented by invalids for whose needs a peculiar climate is desirable. But to the ordinary traveler, Switzerland in winter is dreary. In the city of Geneva itself throughout the year, the mean temperatures from month to month correspond to those of New York with remarkable closeness. Geneva, Lucerne, and Zurich also are hot in midsummer, as hot as Paris. Germany's climate is much like that of New England and the Middle States, with plenty of snow and with skating a favorite amusement. Yet though cold weather prevails, people who have passed winters in Germany, and also in Italy, say they prefer Germany because the houses are warmly built and well provided with stoves. Munich has an uneven temperature and winters that are severe as winters go in Europe, though not with such extremes of cold as occur in the States. Vienna is slightly warmer than Boston in the winter, slightly cooler in the summer. It has sharp changes in temperature. Holland and Belgium are very cold in winter, and see few tourists at that season. In Holland the flowers are at their best, in April and May. The Danish climate in summer is not unlike that of England, and in Scandinavia the summers are delightful. The Orkney Islands are generally bright and sunshiny, with most invigorating air in July and August. The Channel Islands, Jersey, Guernsey, Aldersey, and Sark, have a phenomenally equable and healthful climate due to the influences of the Gulf Stream. In 1898 they had something more than 2,000 hours of sunshine against less than 1,300 for London and about 1,500 for Oxford. By resorting to them, one can in a few hours and at slight expense flee the rigors of an English or French winter. In England itself, much the same effect is produced by the ocean influences on Cornwall. The mean temperature of Falmouth for December is 44.2, of Penzance 43.0, while that of Nice is 45.4, and Pau only 42.8. Furthermore, Cornwall has the advantage of lacking the mistral, the blighting wind that mars the perfections of the Riviera. All of Spain is very warm in summer, so that the best time for traveling through it is in the spring or fall. Southern Spain is much like southern Italy in winter. Water rarely freezes at Gibraltar. Oranges may be picked from the trees above Cadiz, Jerez, and Seville in February. But Granada, surrounded by mountains, is apt to be chilly, and not long after leaving Cordova on the journey toward the north of the mercury begins to drop. At Madrid, snow drifts in winter are not uncommon and the climate is like that of a city in our northern states. In Morocco, Algiers, and Tunis, the November weather is like that of an American June. Until April, the days resemble our bright autumn without dampness. April is one of the best months for a visit, as the flowers are then in their glory. May is like our July, and from then through October is rainless and too hot for American tourists. Ice and snow are almost unknown, Cairo is declared to have the best climate in the world for the three winter months. Perhaps 8,000 foreigners, half of them Americans, visit Egypt every winter, but not many people go there or stay there after April. Anybody planning to go round the world would better leave Egypt in the early winter so as to reach India and Ceylon by January. China should be reached in the spring, and the Japanese climate will be found agreeable in May. The Holy Land and the Far East are best visited in winter or early spring. 
Constantinople weather in July and August is exceedingly warm. May is one of the pleasantest months on the Bosporus. Athens has an equable climate, which in time is going to make it one of the most popular winter resorts on the Mediterranean. With the sea south of it, and hills rising to mountains behind, it has a situation midway that of an island and a continent. The spring and autumn there are charming. Snow falls in winter only once or twice in years. Fogs are rare. The summers are long, but the winds coming over the Aegean temper its heats. If, then, the traveler had the time and money to change his climate like the birds, he would attain the maximum of comfort if he passed January and February in northern Africa, March in Palestine and Turkey, April and May in Italy, southern France and Spain, June in Paris and England, July and August in Switzerland or Norway, Sweden and Russia, September in Germany, October in Austria, November in Greece, December in Sicily. Not that these are positively the best months for each country named, but that this might make the best circular route for a year from the climatic point of view. Of course, there are other considerations that may overbalance those of climate. It is, for instance, sometimes desirable to plan a tour so as to bring one to certain points at the time of certain festivals or ceremonials. It is no longer worthwhile going to Rome for the carnival, because the celebration now hardly warrants crossing the street to see, but it is still a merry affair at Nice, which is about the only place left where it is celebrated with vigor. In all Catholic Europe, the ceremonials of Holy Week are imposing, but they are not always easily accessible. People who have been in Rome in Holy Week have assured me they would not advise it, for any one whose stay there must be brief, as they found many of the museums closed part of the week, and were hardly compensated by the religious ceremonies, having no means of getting tickets to such as were not open to everybody. Christmas, everybody knows, is observed with pomp in all Catholic churches. At Rome, from Christmas to January 6, an interesting affair is the presentation of petitions to the Bambino in the church of Aricoli by children. In Rome and Naples on St. Anthony's Day, January 17, occurs the ceremony of blessing the animals. On Whit Sunday in Naples, the pilgrimages made by crowds to the sanctuary of the Madonna di Monte Vergine, and on Whit Monday to the Madonna del Arco, are picturesque spectacles. On Good Friday, the procession after sunset at Gracina, near Florence, makes a weird scene. And on Easter Monday, a very pretty festa in honor of the Blessed Virgin takes place at Signa, a little town easily reached by steam train from Florence. At the pardon of St. Nicholas des Alps in Brittany on the first Saturday in August, the cattle of the neighborhood, gaily adorned, are driven to two fountains near the chapel, supposed to possess miraculous virtue. Young cattle are presented to the saint, and afterwards sold at auction, the popular belief being that one of them in a herd brings prosperity. At St. Jean du Doit, near Morlaix, Brittany, the interesting local pardon takes place on St. John's Eve, the 23rd of June. A quaint old custom still prevails in the beautiful country on both sides of the Danube, a hundred miles above Vienna, commonly called the Wachnau. At this summer solstice, fires are lighted on all the more prominent heights of the mountains that give the Wachnau its peculiar charm. The picturesque towns and villages on both shores are beautifully illuminated, and the bridges across the great river are ablaze with myriad lights. This festival is now called Johannesvier, or St. John's Fete, by a devout population, 
but the old people call it by its real pagan name, Sonnenwendfier, solstice fires. The 14th of July is the great national holiday in France, and the 29th of July in Switzerland, both being celebrated much like the 4th of July with us. England has no day of this kind, though Guy Fawkes Day, November 5, is celebrated after a fashion. The French observe New Year's Day with much pomp. It is a great holiday in Scotland, but is not observed at all in England. Orleans, in France, celebrates on the 7th and 8th of May the defeat of the English by Joan of Arc. On Ascension Day, May 19, in 1900, Venice celebrates with a procession of gondolas and general merrymaking the triumph of an old Venetian admiral over pirates. In the United Kingdom, the great recreation days are the bank holidays. Easter Monday, April 11 in 1900, Whit Monday, May 30 in 1900, the first Monday in August, and December 26. Ancient holidays still observed to some extent in one way or another are January 6, Twelfth Day, the night before being Twelfth Night, marked by various social rites. February 2, Candlemas. Festival of the Purification of the Virgin. Consecration of the lighted candles to be used in the church during the year. February 14, Old Candlemas, St. Valentine's Day. March 25, Lady Day, Annunciation of the Virgin. June 24, Midsummer Day, Feast of the Nativity of John the Baptist. July 15, St. Swithin's Day, the old superstition being that if rain fell on this day it would continue forty days. August 1, Lamas Day, originally in England the festival of the wheat harvest, in the church the festival of St. Peter's miraculous deliverance from prison. September 29, Michaelmas, the fast of St. Michael, the archangel. November 1, All Hallowmas, or All Saints Day, the previous evening being All Halloween, observed by home gatherings and old-time rites. November 2, All Souls Day, the day of prayer for the souls of the dead. November 11, Martinmas, the Feast of St. Martin. December 28, Childermas, Holy Innocence Day. The quarter days used for calculating rents and tradesmen's accounts are Lady Day, Midsummer Day, Michaelmas, and Christmas in England, Whitsunday, Martinmas, Candlemas and Lamas Day in Scotland, Mothering Sunday is Mid-Length Sunday, on which the old rural custom obtains of visiting one's parents and making them presents. In England, August 12th, is the great day for sportsmen, when the grouse shooting begins, the open time ending December 11th. The partridge season runs from September 1 to February 1, pheasants October 1 to February 1. The period for deer hunting or stalking varies from about August 12 to October 12 for stags, and from November 10 to the end of March for hinds. There is no statutory close time for fox hunting or rabbit shooting, but there is an unwritten law that the sportsman respects as much as he does the enactments of Parliament. November 1 is the recognized date for the opening of the fox hunting season, which continues till the following April. Hares are in best condition in January, February, and March. The close time for salmon in Scotland is for rods, from November 1 to February 10. Racing in England begins in the middle of March and lasts through November, the calendar having about a dozen meetings a month. The most important on the list is Derby Day, the Wednesday of the summer meeting, which takes place at Epsom in Surrey, usually at the end of May, but sometimes early in June. Then London empties itself and goes to the Downs in countless thousands. 
A week or two later comes the Ascot meeting, also near London, a full-dress picnic graced by the presence of many members of the royal family, and noted for the fashionable attendance. Third in importance are the Goodwood races, usually late in July. The chief steeplechase of the year, the Liverpool Grand National, is run in March. In Paris, the Grand Prix is run on a Sunday early in June. The Oxford-Cambridge boat race is rowed on the Thames near London, usually in March. The Eights week at Oxford comes in the middle of May, the Henley Regatta late in June or July. The cricket match between Oxford and Cambridge is played near the end of June, and between Eton and Harrow, usually in July. The football season is much longer than with us, opening September 1 in England and running to April 30. In Scotland it is longer still, from August 15 to May 15. The great rugby matches come in midwinter. The Oxford-Cambridge match is played in December. Interest in the sport resembles that in baseball with us, an attendance of 40 or 50,000 being not infrequent. Yachting regattas, pigeon shooting contests, and tennis tournaments attract much attention on the Riviera in the early spring. The Spanish bullfighting season begins on Easter Sunday and lasts into summer. Oxford is at its best during Trinity term, from the middle of May to the middle of July, and commemoration week, usually the 2nd or 3rd in June, is the gayest. The 4th of June is Gala Day at Eton. The horse fair at Bernay, Normandy, held in the 5th week of Lent, is the most important in France. When there is a Wagnerian festival at Bayreuth, it comes in midsummer. But if you want to go, you must write for tickets weeks and even months ahead. Even then, you may not get them. A letter addressed to the management at Bayreuth will procure the necessary information. By reason of the Paris Exposition, there will be no festival in 1900. The salons at Paris, there are now two of them, open in May and are kept open for some weeks. The Royal Academy in London is open from the first Monday in May to the first Monday in August. The fountains at Versailles generally play between four and five of the afternoon on the first Sunday of each month from May to October, those of St. Cloud at the same hour on the second Sunday of the month. The spectacle at Versailles costs about $2,000 and is well worth taking much pains to see. The flower festival in the Bois de Boulogne at Paris comes about the time of the Grand Prix, early in June. The Paris Exposition will open April 15 and close November 5, 1900. End of section 1